Welcome to the Michigan Publishing Podcast, where we engage with the people and ideas that enable us to support the broadest possible access to scholarship and drive our leadership in academic publishing. I'm Elizabeth Demers, the Editorial Director and Senior Acquiring Editor in Political Science for the University of Michigan Press, as well as the host for this episode. This is the first episode of our four-part mini-series, Dialogues in Democracy, In Conversation. Through this series, we explore some of the core tensions in American political culture, tensions that erupt every four years during the presidential election. Each episode features a pair of authors from the press's political science list who bring different perspectives to the table on U.S. issues of national concern. Social policy often is the source of much debate between citizens and politicians, yet is integral to everyday American life. One area where many social policies intersect and are present in every local community is schools, which not only serve to educate our youth, but also serve as focal points for local communities. They can foster civic engagement as parents and teachers strive to improve the classroom environment. And, as we have seen lately, disruptions to the educational system can have profound effects on the community as a whole. Carolyn Barnes is Assistant Professor of Public Policy and Political Science at Duke University. Her book, State of Empowerment, Low-Income Families and the New Welfare State, explores the ways in which after-school programs bolster the power of parents in the school and community and foster greater civic and political engagement. Rebecca Collins-Given is Associate Professor of Labor Studies and Employment Relations at Rutgers University and co-editor with Amy Schrager-Lang of Strike for the Common Good, Fighting for the Future of Public Education. This book presents original essays by teachers involved in recent nationwide strikes, by students and parents who have supported them, and by outside analysts, both academic and otherwise, to consider the place of these strikes in the broader landscape of recent labor organizing and battles over public education. Carolyn and Rebecca, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So first, I want to ask you both a little bit, and I'll start with Carolyn, to please tell us a little bit about the inspiration for your books. Why, what inspired you to write this book, and why tackle this subject now? I was really interested in understanding social welfare policies and how they affected families beyond just receiving benefits. So I grew up on a number of public assistance programs and knew that access to these programs and the ways that these programs were designed fundamentally affected my family and, and our well-being. And I wanted to explore that uh, in the case of nonprofit social service providers. So since welfare reform, there's been these efforts to contract out to nonprofits the delivery of a whole bunch of publicly funded social services. So I wanted to explore what that looks like in practice. And I ended up at a a large nonprofit in Chicago, and I started as a volunteer in their after-school program. And I was amazed at what was happening on the ground in this program funded by federal dollars, the 21st Century Community Learning Center grant. And as I sort of explored the design of that program and how it really amplified the voices of low-income parents, I got even more intrigued about other federal sources that are targeting nonprofits and schools to deliver these kinds of programs, the school-aged child care or out-of-school time programs for parents and, and looking at how 
those programs are really shaping political engagement and democratic citizenship for parents. So that's how I I arrived there. I wanted to make sense of some of my experiences with public assistance programs and landed in a really great environment and a really great case. And that got the ball rolling. For me, the question of why this topic and why now is an interesting one, because at the time when we started the book, there were reasons, and then those reasons have only been amplified now that we're in 2020. I think the upsurge in strikes that really happened after the uh, West Virginia teachers went on strike in 2018, it seemed like a contagion, or a lot of people referred to it as a strike wave. And one of our contributors, Jane McAlevey, has a really eloquent explanation of why wave is the wrong metaphor, because a wave is something that comes from nature, and strikes do not come from nature. Strikes come from a long-standing public policy decisions, in this case, underfunding and austerity, and they come from organizing, right? They come from act decisions. They don't come from people sitting back. And so what we wanted to do is look at the origins of the upsurge in strikes, the reasons behind it, but then really look at what actually happened, why different teachers walked out on strike, how they organized their strikes, and really amplify the voices of those who were critical to these decisions and to these processes. I think it's really interesting that Carolyn mentions, you know, the role of funding because we really tell a story of the ongoing underfunding of schools since the last recession that uh, really led to this moment where teachers had had enough and knew that they had to do something more in order to preserve public education. I really enjoyed reading these books together because while they both take place in the education space, particularly the K through 12 education space, they both reveal relationships between organizational structures, as you've both just discussed, and the potential for increased political action on the part of individuals, and particularly on the part of women. And I wonder if you both could talk a little bit about the role of women in shaping these different community spaces. And Rebecca, if you could go first. Yeah, the walkout by teachers is really a gendered movement. So most people probably know teaching is a workforce that's heavily, heavily dominated by women. And we see that in, for example, you know, the pay penalty where because teaching was considered women's work, it was paid as if it was a sort of secondary income in any household where there would be a male breadwinner making the real money that was needed to survive. And so part of what pushed women to walk out was that they were supporting their whole households. They were providing the um, essential income and they were also providing the health insurance that was absolutely essential to the survival of their whole family. And I think what really came together was the moment of women's activation around things like the Women's March after the 2016 election, where women started to realize that they did have the ability to fight back and they were experiencing something collectively or shared and that the only option to do something about it was to say, you know, it's not acceptable to treat teachers this way just because we're women or just because historically you have decided to pay teachers less because they're 
their female workforce and in many cities are heavily, heavily dominated by women of color, that those labor market inequities were not an acceptable reason for the ways that teachers were both demeaned, but then also depended on. So providing this essential work, playing an essential role in our communities, yet uh, completely undercompensated for it. It's um, interesting hearing Rebecca talk. I'm thinking through a parental involvement and teachers inviting parents to become involved in schools and how that can cultivate civic skills and raise awareness about local issues. And I was just thinking, oh, women are inviting women to participate. And that's really cool. I do think that after school programs offer a really unique opportunity for women who are caregivers. And, and a lot of the women that I interviewed were single moms, single African-American moms. It offers those women an, an opportunity to become engaged in their child's development and academic enrichment in alternative ways that maybe the, the public education space doesn't. So we know from the ed literature that after about the third or fourth grade, parents don't get invited anymore to become involved. So the, the invitations for bringing snacks to class or the the invitations for chaperoning uh, field trips, the invitations for monitoring the classroom, and the invitations for the Parent Teachers Association, the PTA, those tend to fall off as children age. So after the third grade, the invitations stop coming. And the invitations really stop coming for African-American parents, especially low-income African-American parents. They're usually excluded from the participatory elements of schooling for parents. So I I found that these after-school programs became a space for women, for Black women, to connect with each other and to connect with staff in ways that sort of replace that missed opportunity in the K through 12 setting. So if I actually had a lot of women say, you know, I felt alienated by my local school and I don't necessarily trust the teachers or this assistant professor, but I feel like I have uh, better trusting relationships with the staff here at this program, this after school program, and I have the opportunity to weigh in on the program in ways that directly affect the quality of my son or my daughter's experience. And in the process, they're gaining all of these skills and competencies that increase their confidence to speak up in other ways outside of the program. So they become mobilized to do a lot of neat things in their community because they're having these more affirming, positive experiences in the after-school program. So uh, I definitely feel like it's an accessible alternative for women who might otherwise not have those opportunities in the public school system. I think that's super interesting because I think that the sort of backdrop that you set up there, Carolyn, really demonstrates one of the things that the unions thought about in building power and organizing and preparing for a strike. So, you know, in the case of the Los Angeles teachers, years before the strike, they hired parent organizers because they knew that there had been a long period of time of parents being pitted against teachers, right? And teachers being blamed for what ails public schools. And so they knew that they had work to do. Many teachers are public school parents as well, but that doesn't mean that it's straightforward to build those relationships. And so sort of understanding what the context was and saying we're going to be really strategic and thoughtful in working with parents to show that we're all fighting for the good of our community. 
Great. Thank you both. So how do you think that policymakers and education administrators will benefit from being more informed about the concerns both of striking teachers, Rebecca, and the pro-civic engagement role of after-school programs, Carolyn? And maybe, Rebecca, you can kick us off. I think that policymakers can see sort of two sides of the coin here. I think one side is understanding the relationship between school funding and starving public education of funding and what happens next, right? So whether it's about losing teachers and a teacher shortage because of the low pay of teachers, or whether it's about sufficient buildings or small enough classes, that there's a direct line between how much you're willing to fund schools and educational outcomes. And then I think the other thing is just understanding that there are consequences and that teachers are willing to fight. So there was a long period of time up until 2012 when there were very, very few teacher strikes. Teachers were downtrodden. They were blamed by politicians of both parties for anything and everything that was not going well in public schools. And they weren't really standing up and fighting back. And now we have politicians who can see that if they don't support public education, teachers are willing to act. And we see that with the campaigns that are happening now around school safety during the pandemic, and we see it around funding issues. So they understand that underfunding schools is no longer automatically a winning or at least neutral electoral issue. It's actually something that can stir a massive backlash. From where I sit in the after-school care space, I think it's a great case of how you can design programs that enhance the quality of the client experience and incentivize really good behavior from bureaucrats or staff members. I think the after-school case featured in my book really shows that. So if we can uh, figure out a way to design programs so that we're structuring and fostering supportive interactions and supportive relationships between parents and staff members, that's the key. And also offering opportunities for parental involvement. So offering places and spaces within the program that give parents or that give clients the capacity to, to weigh in on the design of the program, staffing issues, on the direction of the program. As it stands, most safety net programs beyond this case, beyond the child care case, don't do those things. There's a gatekeeping function for a lot of safety net programs. So I'm thinking of SNAP and Medicaid, where you have to demonstrate that you're deserving enough of these programs through a means test. And there are a bunch of different hurdles that kind of keep you at a distance between workers and clients and that don't really give clients the capacity to speak up and voice their concerns and opinions about the delivery of the program. So clients sort of feel disaffected. Caseworkers don't develop personal relationships with their clients. And you see, you know, demobilizing patterns for folks that are engaging in these kinds of means-tested programs. So I think there's a way to incentivize personal relationships through policy 
if if instead of looking for ways to keep people off programs, we decided that we wanted to make sure everyone who's eligible for programs can get the program and stay on the program. So recruitment and retention incentives, staff members would probably work to provide more personal, customized service delivery. If we figured out ways to structure long-term check-ins that weren't about monitoring eligibility, but were about you know the well-being of families, we probably would see uh, supportive interactions between workers and clients. And if we gave people the opportunity to become involved in the delivery of social services, we'd see civic skills develop among clients. We'd also see a boost in internal efficacy and the confidence to participate. That could really be influential in transforming how low-income citizens are interacting with the state. Yeah, Carolyn, I just see so many common threads here because I think there's so much to learn about understanding how the interests of the clients, the public school students and families, and the providers, whether caseworkers or public school teachers, and how they can be really aligned and how policy works best with that understanding instead of them either being pitted against each other or just seen as kind of separate, even if they're not exactly in conflict. And I think when they're aligned, these great things can happen. In our book, we have, you know, examples of teachers fighting to keep ICE out of public schools or keeping the kind of discipline out of schools that, you know, directly feeds the school to prison pipeline and how that's to the benefit of everyone. And so understanding how these interests can really work together and that policy can be designed, keeping that at the forefront. I totally agree. One of the things that was really striking to me about these books was the relationship between public policy, which we tend to think of as being kind of abstract and not personal, and the direct impact that it had on people's lives. And Carolyn, in your book, um, the policy issues were directly related to the experience that parents had in their after-school programs and civic engagement. And there's a similar thing that's happening um, with your book, Rebecca, and I, I just found this really fascinating, actually, this direct connection between people's lived actual experience and the effects of policy. Yeah, I think that it is very easy for people to disengage from questions like public funding and tax policy and program design and things like that. But at certain moments when critical events happen or when strategic organizing um, takes place, people start to make the connections and um, and the direct relationship between policy decisions and the experience of community members in these programs becomes really clear. So I think one of the things that striking teachers did really well is they broke down public education funding. So whether in uh, Chicago, where in the most recent teacher strike, they really looked at a lot of development incentives and how much money was being given to commercial interests and real estate developments that could have been given to public schools. In uh, LA, they really highlighted the challenging nature of the property tax system, and they're pushing for increasing property taxes on corporations so that they can have increased funding for schools. And in West Virginia, you know, looking at how schools had been starved for many, many years and understanding that has an impact on your class size. That's why we have a teacher shortage, right? That's why you have old textbooks or you don't have an air-conditioned classroom, right? And that you can actually 
break this uh, sort of causal chain down into something that's understandable by the community at large and by people who vote, right? People who will then take that information and use it to inform who they're going to vote for. Yeah, to add to that, I think aside from like those big sort of macro level, here's how funding works, little things in policy guidance, uh, little things in administrative rules, little things in grant requirements can uh, shape behavior, shape the behavior of staff towards parents um, and shape the design of programs. So, for example, with the 21st Century Community Learning Center, the study was conducted in Chicago. So the overarching uh, state agency that ran that program was the Illinois Board of Education. And they had in their guidelines, a general guideline that suggested or required, I should say, um, programs develop some parent engagement piece. And there are a lot of the federal child care legislation uh, similarly encourages that programs develop a parent engagement or community involvement piece and tie quality, the quality of programs to family engagement. So this one guideline produces or gives agencies the discretion to develop really interesting uh, parent involvement structures. So some agency might do parent satisfaction survey. Another organization might do um, a parent advisory board. And another organization might have a parent volunteer group. Because they have that guideline and that requirement, they're developing programs with parent engagement and broader sort of community involvement in mind. So small things like that are tracking attendance and rewarding consistent attendance, rewarding programs that ensure that kids are have their butts in the chair and they're, they're there on a regular basis and rewarding retention. Those kinds of things uh, shape staff members' behavior towards parents. So now you're getting you know phone calls. How's Johnny doing? How's Susie doing? When are we going to see him back? Uh, we've noticed he's missed a couple days. We'd love to see him back. Or you get sort of these tailored approaches to to basically wooing, <laughs> for lack of a better word, you know, wooing parents and trying to keep parents involved in the program and trying to keep their kids in the program because you have these guidelines. You have these little little um, rules that are a part of the policy that shifts the way staff engage parents. So there's the public funding piece, but there's also the, the strings that are attached to the funding that can shape um, what staff do with parents and ultimately the quality of that experience for parents. Yeah. And I actually, I think you see that in the K-12 context, especially in what had gone on um, particularly in the Obama era with programs like Race to the Top that really affected what happens in each and every school in the country, you know, with the sort of rise of teaching to the test, um, some of the attacks on, on teachers' job security and teachers' tenure and trying to, you know, adapt what goes on in school to the regulatory requirements had this profound impact on the experience of education that students and their families had, as well as teachers who were providing that education. 
It's kind of like a mixed bag. On the one hand, these are good things. So Race to the Top had broader implications beyond K-12 through education. It also kind of revamped how we think about um, quality in the childcare space, and a lot of school-age kids are affected by that. So extending um, eligibility periods for well, the child care subsidy, um, extending eligibility periods to 12 months instead of six or three, uh, focusing on quality and quality, including family engagement and including something that's a little more holistic and helping children and helping families. And and I feel like, you know, on the one hand, Race to the Top probably had some detrimental effects, as you know, on the quality of public education and the, the, the stressors that teachers feel. But there's also sort of these 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 highlights or silver linings, I guess, in how it's challenged the childcare workforce to be more intentional in how they engage parents and created this potential for parent involvement and parent engagement. Yeah, I mean, to me, that really highlights, and I've thought about this a lot more in some of my other work, especially in healthcare, but how much are the workers, the providers on the front line brought into the policymaking decisions, right? Is their expertise and experience listened to, engaged? Is it used to thoughtfully design policy programs or are they, you know, designed by people sitting around a room, none of whom have worked in an after-school program or in a public school? And where is their expertise brought into the process, if at all? Mm-hmm, for sure. So both of your books have published at a historic moment that nobody could have foreseen when you started writing them. The COVID pandemic has centered the role of schools in society in a way that makes your work even more timely. How are the themes of state of empowerment and strike for the common good playing out in the current environment of school shutdowns and uncertainty? And what does this mean for parents and teachers and children? And Rebecca, do you want to go first? Yeah, I feel like we all maybe see our own work this way, but I feel like it could not be more more relevant in the current moment. And what we're seeing is, you know, a few things are at play. One is this understanding of the central role that schools play in our society, where there's a lot of anxiety about what will happen to students who aren't getting the level of education that they would otherwise be getting if they could go to school in person. There's a lot of complicated conversations going on around the role that schools play in just supporting the childcare needs of families, where you know the parents have to go to work and you know the children need to be taken care of, and this complicated. A situation where teachers are seen as both essential, but also sort of expendable or worth sacrificing, right? And so this uh, political sentiment that teachers should go to work in the classroom, no matter the health risks that they have, and no matter how poorly ventilated or how unsafe their classroom is. And so we're seeing this real crystallization of the important role that public schools play in our society. And we're also seeing, you know, I would say the consequences of long-term underfunding, where one of the reasons it's hard to make safe schools is because the buildings are crumbling or because the classes are very large. If you had smaller classes, it would be easier to break the students down into, you know, pods that that fit our public health mandates. But we can't do that when there's 40-person 
different classes with with only one teacher. And I think the other piece of it is we're really seeing teachers being willing to take collective action. So we've seen some strike threats in New York and Chicago that have forced those school districts to change course on remote versus in-person instruction, or at least to change the timing of that. We've also seen a lot of sick outs in states where the union members don't have uh, as many rights, where sick outs are just a you know concerted uh, campaign of calling in sick at the same time in order to make a statement or bring about change. So we're seeing all of these pieces really come together, I think, in this moment of intensified focus on the role of schools. I think, I mean, one other piece I'd add, I guess, is that we're seeing retirements and resignations. We're seeing teachers saying, you know, this was hard enough before. I was underpaid. My health insurance was getting less affordable. And I'm not going to do it anymore because now it's all of that and I'm supposed to put my life on the line or my family's health on the line. So we are likely to see an increase in the already pretty serious teacher shortage. And I would add that depending on which state you're in and, you know, the state of stay at home orders or in North Carolina, we've been doing this by county and by municipal government. And, you know, for a long time, there was uncertainty on whether or not child care was considered an essential service and whether or not people could send their kids to child care. So you see this sort of massive disruption in people's access to child care early on. And I find in, in my work that parents are not just relying on after-school programs or child care centers for care. These programs also play a really important social supportive role. So a lot of the the women that I interview report really deep personal relationships with the after school staff, and they really rely on staff members for advice, for material assistance when needed, for child rearing um, advice and help. And it, it seems to me like uh, the pandemic has really disrupted those connections or fundamentally shifted those connections. And I, I kind of worry about that. I worry that unless child care workers and child care centers and after school programs are stepping up to fill in the gap that K through 12 education in this remote learning space has left open, that we're going to see a lot of parents not only having to homeschool and and the challenges of maintaining employment with a bunch of kids around, uh, but also a lot of parents losing out on the social connections they've developed with staff and other parents in these spaces. So there's more social isolation and a disruption of those really important relationships, along with the stresses of providing education for your kids, becoming the teacher uh, in a lot of different places in the U.S. right now. So I, I think that there's been this major disruption. And as, as Rebecca pointed out a little earlier, child care workers, too, are kind of um, underappreciated and under undervalued and are expected to risk their their lives for the sake of caring for for kids in the same way that you know K through 12 educators are and it is it's just interesting it's interesting to see how this plays out not in a good way i think i think the pandemic has really revealed some fractures in our systems that have been there for quite a while that really need to be addressed do you think that the pandemic will have any lasting policy influence or any lasting influence on the development of public policy or education policy? 
you know, it just depends. We're in an election year and <laughs> I think it just depends on the administration. I, I feel like there's a lot of different voices now that are making the case for more generous uh, child care policies, calls for universal child care. And it's a diverse um, set of voices. So this isn't, you know, the the federal efforts to get into this space, whether it's early childhood education or school age care, that was oriented around child care services being a work support for low income families that are moving off of welfare and into work. So we framed the child care space for a lot of um, from a federal perspective, for a lot of families as a work support and something that's supposed to help them work more and depend less on the government. But now that a lot of, you know, middle class women and upper middle class women are kind of struggling to figure out childcare in this, you know, new era of remote learning, I think we're we're seeing a lot of different people call for more generous, drastic measures to ensure that everybody's got childcare. And I think if we do see a change in the administration, there might be opportunities for a more generous um, benefit package, so to speak, around childcare. So the childcare subsidy, could we, you know, see that program go from, you know, a discretionary block grant to an entitlement? Could we provide uh, more money, just simply more money to deliver that program? Could we, you know, uh, provide states with additional funds from the federal perspective? Could we do, provide states with additional funds to continue to run universal pre-K programs and expand those programs? Are there ways that we can make this component of the safety net work for everyone? I think there's a lot of potential for that, given what we've seen come out of this pandemic and the childcare crisis that's been revealed. Yeah, I think in the case of K through 12, my answer would be uh, it depends on willingness to raise taxes and willingness to spend money. So one of the cons, and that will obviously, you know, they're depending on election outcomes of, at various, you know, state level as well as federal level, that will play out differently. But also, uh, you know, in some states, teachers and their unions and the families that they've organized with are um, are organizing for tax increases. So in Arizona, there's a ballot initiative known as Invest in Ed, which is a direct result of the teacher walkouts uh, in 2018 that is uh, looking uh, likely to be successful, that will raise taxes to directly fund education. And so I think, you know, the lessons of the pandemic about how we should be thinking about these institutions, the important role that they play in our communities and in our society. The willingness to sort of learn the lessons of the pandemic depends on whether there's any money there and whether there's uh, ability to, you know, say there are certain things worth raising taxes for, even though that's not been a popular view in recent years to raise taxes for anything. And education, you know, whether we're talking about after school programs or uh, K 12, is one of them. So I think the lessons are there to be learned. Whether they'll be learned or not depends on the willingness to, to spend money. I'm interested in this idea of taxation and what happens with the election. Do you think that social policy tends to mobilize voters more than it used to, or is it an effective campaigning tool? I think it's a great question. Most voters, I think, don't think about social policy in the general sense, but in the particular sense, right? So 
if you're talking about something really tangible like class size, which, you know, most parents can see what impact that has on, on their child's education or even teachers pay, right? So early in the Democratic primary, there were even proposals about, you know, dollar amounts that, you know, no teacher should be paid less nationwide than a certain amount. So some of the really tangible forms I think are, but are appealing to voters. Um, I think when it gets um, a bit general, people are less likely to connect with those issues. And to add to that, it also depends on how visible the policy is. So I think uh, political scientists in sort of studying the effects of public policy on mass political behavior tend to treat policies as creating um, constituencies that'll either be mobilized to support the policy, given their material stake in the policy. So they'll go to the polls and they'll vote for the elected representative that will ensure that this policy sticks around and that it grows. So a good example of that would be Social Security and um, how it politically activated uh, seniors. Or, you know, you have a constituency that's disaffected and demobilized. And a good example of that would be cash assistance programs. So I think it really depends on the connections that people make to policy. So the two programs that I just mentioned, they're really visible. They're really visible to people. They're really um, visible in uh, in general and, and tend to be the topic of, of political discourse historically. So people are always talking about Social Security and, and Medicaid and Medicare and TANF, AFDC in the past. Um, they'll bring up these policies because they're super you know visible. You get a benefit. But there are other ways that folks are benefiting from the, the state or from social policy that they're not aware of. And Suzanne Mettler has a, a lot of really great work on on. Um, the submerged state and how people are benefiting from various tax breaks that um, they don't particularly view as social policy, but really are invisible ways that the state is protecting them as citizens. And, you know, whether they acknowledge it or not, they're benefiting. And to some degree, there there is a little bit of movement around engagement when it comes to the, to those policies. Are voters up in arms because, you know, the mortgage uh, interest rate deduction uh, changes or are they moved one way or the other to vote because of, you know, small tax breaks um, in the tax code? Sure, <laughs> I think so. Um, but these more visible policies, social policies tend to have like a bigger punch or or something that we've paid more attention to and measured. And I think um, given the lessons from my work and from others' work, I think we need to be really attentive to the design of these programs and make sure that these programs aren't demobilizing a potential constituency or creating inequities in political participation. Like we want political equality where everybody is engaging in the democratic process. Everybody's voting, everybody's exercising political voice. And we need to be conscious of the ways we design elements of the state so we can ensure that. Yeah, I think um, it's great that you brought up Suzanne Mettler's work on the submerged state. I was actually going to mention it, too. I think it's exactly right. The way people understand what programs they benefit from and whether that's something that is somehow earned or it's a universal entitlement, I think is, is really important. I think one of the things that some of the teachers' strikes have done 
is really uh, demonstrate that decisions around, you know, educational policy and especially education funding are tied directly to, you know, elected leaders. So when the Chicago teachers in 2012 went toe-to-toe with Rahm Emanuel, who was a Democrat, that really marked a big shift from a long period of time when teachers and teachers unions were saying, we're not so happy with what the Democrats are doing, but they're better for us than the Republicans. So we, I guess we just don't have much leverage here. They said, you know what? No, we're going to call out these policies that are implemented by elected officials that are not working for us and not working for our communities. And I think making that argument and taking that argument to the broader electorate has been um, really, really significant. I would also add, I think that there's missed opportunities because we focus, and I know the question is about voting, but I think because we focus on voting in very high profile salient elections in particular, I think there are missed opportunities to understand the intersection of public policy design and what people are doing locally. So Rebecca's example with with strikes and her edited book is, is a perfect illustration of this. Child care programs encouraging parents to do community work and to work with local elected officials to change community conditions. That's another example. Like there's a lot of vibrant things happening at the local and state level that gets kind of overshadowed um, by big ticket federal issues. And rightfully so, especially, you know, during this, you know, this crisis and really the tenuous relationship between the state and citizens for for quite some time, rightfully so. I do think that there are ways that policies are engaging people and and mobilizing people locally to make change. This is a great segue to my next question, which is if you had to pick one takeaway, Carolyn and Rebecca, from each of your books that American citizens should keep in mind as they vote in the 2020 presidential election, what would that takeaway be? It's a hard question because I think there's so much that we should always be learning from from our experience and from our past. But I think to me, the biggest question is actually, you know, listen to the people with the most experience and expertise. And when we're talking about education and social programs, listen to the teachers, listen to the families, understand what they're saying about their funding or about safety going back to work in the pandemic. and try to understand how policy proposals that are on the ballot do or don't reflect the experience and expertise of those who know the most about the situation. That was kind of similar to what I was going to say. I was going to say, educate yourself. But uh, getting that kind of education is really costly. And I think in the way that we study political behavior, scholars tend to characterize American voters as super rational. And in being rational, they're not actually seeking out good information. And now, you know, social media has kind of distorted the kind of information that we're all getting. But, you know, we tend to rely on like opinion leaders uh, or people that we know that we think are are knowledgeable on these, these topics. And we don't 
um, you know, try to understand things for ourselves and understand um, key policy issues. For example, the state of North Carolina did not expand Medicaid. And I wonder how many people would have benefited from a Medicaid expansion that could be potentially mobilized to elect a state rep that would push for that, that would advocate for that. So I think if you're not necessarily educated on the nuts and bolts of a policy and what specific things mean. So with social policy, especially policies that are targeting low-income families, there are all these little rules and things that are written into legislation that wholesale change the nature of a program, change who's eligible for a program, change how you access programs, change the generosity of programs. And we've seen that, you know, with this pandemic and the COVID-19 policy waivers, those are just small changes to very important rules that have drastically transformed how people can access a whole bunch of public assistance programs. And if, you know, the average voter who benefited from those programs understood those rules, I think they would be more apt to vote for people who would draft legislation with accessibility and the generosity of social policy in mind. So I think, you know, listening to the right people and really just educating yourself, and it takes a lot of time and energy, which I think a lot of us are strapped for now, especially, but it it might be worth it. It's worth it long term if you want to see policies that reflect your interests. Well, I want to thank you both, Rebecca and Carolyn, for a really fascinating discussion today. I enjoyed myself so much. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for, for having us. This was fun. Strike for the Common Good and State of Empowerment can be purchased at press.umich.edu and are also available through the University of Michigan Press ebook collection. For other titles in the Dialogues and Democracy collection and to learn more about Michigan publishing, please visit publishing.umich.edu. Please tune in for our next episode in the Dialogues and Democracy in Conversation miniseries for a conversation about national security. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Michigan Publishing Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss a show. You can also follow the University of Michigan Press on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn for posts about episodes and other relevant content about our work. This podcast was written by Sean Manning and produced by Teresa Schmidt with the support of Michigan Publishing at the University of Michigan. Michigan.